What's your clap and slap ratio? I probably don't get to five. It's probably a good learning for me. <laughs> <that>. but, um... <laughs> Welcome to podcast, Adam Walsh, CEO of John Good Group. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So for, for watchers, listeners, do you want to just introduce yourself a bit, bit about your backstory and what you're currently doing at John Good? Yeah, no problem at all. So um, my background is is typically family businesses. Mm-hmm. I've been in family businesses most of my career. And they have tend to have one thing in common. They've all got quite big growth ambitions. Yeah. So my job has historically been in, in most of the leadership roles is about bringing a team together and trying to get them aligned to go on a bit of a mission and really go and achieve a goal. Um, my background itself is marketing, commercial roles and sales. So that's where I sort of grew up, started out university as a marketing degree and, um, I've really just progressed through there, went through the ranks of a marketing department, took on some marketing leadership roles, ended up being put in out, out there in the real world and tried to get into the sales environment, yep. did okay in there, built various different teams and did some of these sorts of things. Then ultimately graduated into a, into more leadership roles. Excellent. Uh, and how long have you been at the John Good Group? Uh, 14 months. So I'm oh, a relative, okay. yeah, relative newbie within yeah. the group. So the group itself went through a huge, uh, and we are going through a huge period of transition. So if you go back to August, September 2021, the group disposed of its largest trading business, a business called Good Logistics. Okay. Good Logistics had 200 of our 300 headcount. It probably accounted for 80% of the group's turnover half the group's profitability. It was a big deal, right? And not only did the trading business go, but the leadership of the group went at the same time. So CEO, CFO, HR, IT, marketing, everything went with this transaction. So it was a massive period of change. And um, really, so on day one, September the 1st, 2021, we had one member of staff at group who's now my CFO, Ben. And he was sort of wearing many hats and trying to keep the sort of wheels on the group, working with the board of directors. Uh, I was approached in sort of October, November time of that year and then took post in, in January 2022. Uh, time's flying by already. I bet. And we'll, we'll get into kind of family business actually in a, in a second because I'm mm. keen to interest, keen to hear about how that's different from, I guess, a non-family business. But we'd like to start with something that's a bit topical. And uh, one of the things that you probably can't get away from at the minute is the Gary Lineker issue. Uh, putting stuff on Twitter that his employer didn't agree with at the time, although it seems to have rolled back on that position mm-hmm. since then. Uh, but from a from a leadership perspective, I wanted to get your view on that in terms of, I guess, how much control should an employer have over what an employee puts out on on social media, particularly as the business gets bigger and bigger, more and more employees? How, how do you control that or should you control that? So starting off with easy questions, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah well, don't do what the BBC did. I think no. is, is rule number one around that. Good rule of thumb. Um, yeah. It's an incredibly difficult topic um, because like a lot of things now, the boundaries between work and home and who you are as a person and who you are as in a profession, it's starting to, everything's blurring. Yeah. Right. So I think it's, I think it is a, an incredibly difficult topic to get right and difficult subject to get right. And I think a lot of it leans back on the culture within an organization. So what is the culture of the business and what are you going to be willing to accept and not accept? Mm. And that's, I think, where the BBC have sort of got it slightly wrong because were their guidelines clear enough? There's a debate around that. Were they were they clear on the contractual position between the different people and how those guidelines applied? Mm. 
uh, were they consistent in how they have um, managed previous situations on the same sort of topic? And then the BBC have got obviously the other big issue about impartiality and also the political environment they operate in. That's different for a business, right? Yeah. But um, there's a lot to unpack in all of that. In terms of broadly how uh, I've approached it in the past, probably more relevant than where we are now because the John Grigg Group is going through a lot of trying to assess how we do these things right, right now. But in terms of the past, I, th- I think there's there's two or three clear ways to at least provide some of that clarity. The first is to have a really clear policy about how corporate accounts should be. So that's really clear and actually really easy to control. What's acceptable, what's not, what topics are you willing to go near, what you aren't. Yeah. So all the staff that are in and around the corporate accounts should be crystal clear on what they should and shouldn't do. You've then got your staff's personal accounts. Well, from a control perspective, I'm going to have to argue that generally that's their accounts. They're responsible for their own, uh, how they are outside of the work environment. But I think work can assist with that. So this is the difference between a policy and guidelines and training. And I think you can help um, employees understand the ramifications of some of their choices outside of the work environment Mm. that can still impact the workplace itself. And that's where I think work can have some influence, but I wouldn't say necessarily control over what people post and don't post. And I think that's the bit where employees, uh, sorry, employers have to get a lot better actually Mm. recognizing that they've got to try and give people the skills to manage some of these situations Mm. when they're outside of the workplace. I think that can be part of our responsibility as an employer. So it's more guidance and training as opposed to rules and policies. What about LinkedIn? Because that's a bit of a blurred line because you've got the brand on someone's page and as we know from posts on LinkedIn regularly Mm -hmm. you know it it can be easy to post the wrong thing I guess is that an area that you would try and put some control or is that a free territory for for your employees? Yeah okay so there's there's a couple of things in that I like my uh, the culture that I want in the business is a culture where people are able to voice opinions on Mm -hmm. topics okay because if you're not that, that's not the sort of culture I want to have in my yeah. team. I want our team to be challenging. I think some challenge internally is a good one. So to then say to people, you can't challenge externally is pro- probably a little bit hypocritical of me. But what I will acknowledge is that that comes with an element of risk. And the mm. question is, am I comfortable with the risk or not? So I'm going to argue, yes, I am with some challenging opinions. Okay. Mm. But that still has a spectrum, right? So on one side, you've got clearly things that you should not be engaging with, whether it's a personal thing or on a work platform like LinkedIn. Yeah. So anything that falls into discrimination, pornography, any of these sorts of things, clearly, no brainer, stay away from all of that. It's just not appropriate. You see a lot of stories on LinkedIn about people approaching people on LinkedIn through direct messenger and sending inappropriate things. You're bang to rights on those things. That's not what it's there for. Okay. Mm, yeah. So you've got that end of the uh, end of the spectrum. You've then got the middle bit, which is where some personality comes in and some personal preference around subjects or topics. Well, my view on that is just be conscious about the choices that you're making and, and be ready to live with the consequences that come with your, your comments or how you engage with things on, on social media. But that's all about just making being conscious about it. Are you doing this thinking of the consequences? Mm. There's areas even within that where you have to think more carefully again. So if it's a broad topic, and I'll, I'll give you a good example of a broad topic shortly, then you may be okay. But actually, if you're talking about some very specific topics that maybe involve a supplier or a 
customer or a former employee or even a, a situation that can be tied back to a former employee or even a current employee. It, okay, make the choice consciously, but live with those, live with the ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to work for an oil company in Leeds. We were a distributor of uh, BP products. Okay. And you remember the BP disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Right? So that was an incredibly challenging time. Social media has definitely linked in, but social media was still around, but it maybe wasn't as prevalent in the work environment then. But you'd have people feeling really passionate about what BP as a business had done. And we had a real challenge internally about actually how do we, you know, I feel about what they did wasn't great to be mm. blunt, but actually how do we deal with that? Because they're a major stakeholder yeah. in our organization. And the way we ended up tackling that was bringing the team together and just talking internally and then getting people to air out the stuff internally and talking about, well, look, we still need to trade with these guys. They're still the lifeblood of this business because they give us access to products and services. So we've got to recognize how important they are to us, but that doesn't stop you feeling the way you feel about an incident. And you've just got to think about that more consciously. And then you've got the far end of the spectrum, which is go for it. You know, if someone's out of order, if someone's wrong, if they're if they're incorrect about a topic or you've got a strong opinion on it, go for it. Step in. Because I'd expect you to do that internally. Yes. Yeah, minefield, isn't it? It is. It's, yeah, it's, it is. It's, it's tough because we did a pod with our MD Rob a couple of weeks ago and it was about whether you yourself and there might be you know someone uh, the analogy that was used was all to do with like part of my health and safety, you know, thing, here's my certificate. Okay fine you know it's not particularly newsworthy to them it might be but then it's like actually do you go on and say well you know great for you and not bothered or do you just move on and, and it's it's having that ability to to do you like you rightly say adam like go in and be answer or put a comment as you want to put it and just put up with whatever the ramifications are but i guess in a in senior roles you've got to be mindful of what that images if you go in with a personal comment um what that what that how that rebounds back to you as a leader of a business and what mm-hmm. the impact on the business is potentially probably 99 times 100 you're not going to maybe put what you really really think cuz cuz of the ramification but um yeah it's it's tough isn't it and in those environments you, you just sometimes have to be, think of the bigger picture yeah. rather than yeah i've always got the back of my mind how does what i'm about to post reflect on the organization that i represent and that's sometimes that pulls me back from posting some of the stuff that you know i feel passionate about if i'm honest but, but that's leadership in general yeah you know that's the same as your internal comms or anything yeah. else it's always that why as uh, that the more senior you go in the business the more you've got to understand the wider stakeholder environment on everything that you do yeah. whether that be social media internal comms yeah. how you dress how you speak to people in the office yeah all of that stuff is is the more senior the more you've just got to take over the wider stakeholder yeah it's the politics of business and i think i learned part during my career that I didn't like politics, but politics of business is a fact of life and you have different stakeholders that you have to manage. And if you don't, then you become a victim of that politics if you're not careful. And it's just, that just falls under that for me. I, I want to talk about culture because you mentioned it earlier. I think you're right. The social media policy is kind of related to the culture of the organization. So describe to me, I guess, the the culture that you are creating, that you're trying to create within John Good Group. What does that look like? Hi guys, just jumping in. I want to talk about one of the services we offer, which is robotic process automation, also known as RPA. That is software that replicates human behavior. So if you've got people downloading spreadsheets, attaching them to emails, going on portals, downloading information, moving data around, 
all that stuff is perfect for a robot. So if that's interesting, get in touch. Let's have a chat. Let's see if we can help. Enough from me. Back to the conversation. It's a really interesting one because of where the history of the company has been. Okay, so there's be there was a hell of a lot of focus that went into the business that was sold. It was mm. definitely the jewel in the crown of the group at the time, and the other businesses were were arguably underinvested, to to be blunt. And what that drove in terms of the behaviour within the organisation was um, not a negative thing, but it was very very focused on the here and now, the. Uh, let's keep what we've got without pushing any boundaries or taking any risks. So mm. culturally, it was a, a reasonably sort of frozen environment in terms of how they wanted to change and were they open to change. Mm. Um, with that sale, has created an opportunity um, really for us to relook at the entire group, okay, and, and how we want to move it forward. And one of the key drivers behind that has been the generational shift from the fifth generation to the sixth generation being the major. As shareholders within the business and the sixth generation are very different to the fifth generation. <laughs> they are both that John, who's the fifth generation is an amazing guy steeped in logistics and shipping history. Superb guy knows everything is that just sit and talk to John all day. You just get lost for hours. Mm. Amazing. Tim, uh, so different, uh, passionate philanthropist, passionate environmentalist, but also went off and built his own businesses. So he's far more open to taking risks so we're in a really transitional phase, not only in terms of the culture, which I will come back to, but in yeah. terms of what we want to try and do. But to actually, to, to deliver on Tim's ambition, we're going to have to really try and challenge some of the norms within our existing businesses because you can't have a passionate environmentalist who owns the company with businesses that are warehousing and logistics, horrible for the environment, shipping, horrible for the environment, corporate, um, corporate travel. Horrible for the environment, right? So let, let's let's not try and beat around the bush. The three businesses we're in don't align with the values of mm -hmm. Tim. But to square that circle, the approach is we could get out and moan about it, or we stay in the industry and try and lead change. And that's effectively the approach that we're taking with our existing businesses. And while we're small parts of the cogs of those industries, we can definitely do things because we're more agile to go and do those things. So that's the first bit. The second bit is transitioning the business away from its existing business lines into some of the businesses that are trying to tackle some of the biggest issues. So we're actively now um, pursuing an M&A policy about acquiring um, energy transition businesses, so EV charging businesses, um, uh, okay. heat pump, air pump. Uh, we're looking at solar businesses, so insulation. So we're actively trying to move the group away into the into these new marketplaces that better reflect actually the values of the shareholders and the family. So how do you make all that work in the context of the culture? Well, the first thing we had to do was rebuild a central team that was open for this challenge. And to be honest, I was quite fortunate with the way that that all happened because I arrived as employee number three at group. <laughs> right? So we had Ben, we had Steph, and I arrived in the January. So I've got a blank canvas. Mm. So from a from a me perspective, I can build a central team in the vision that we want the future to be like rather than trying to change the culture that's historically been in the business. And that's allowed me to go out and find uh, you know, three or four exceptional people in their own field. So Ben, CFO, is ex-PWC, bright as a button, young guy, really ambitious, brill. Um, Rich Quelsh, CMO, he joined in October last year. Um, 
super enthusiastic about everything, really knows his trade, is already making real big impact into our positioning and and how we uh, we do our sort of go-to-market strategy. And he will put a rocket under all of our businesses in terms of growth. And, and we'll come back to that because that's one of the low-hanging fruit where we can really evidence that what the group wants to do can change the cultures within the business mm. because we're giving evidence straight away, straight off the bat, what we're doing is working. Uh, David North... So he is a systems innovation guy. He's been in our travel business. Uh, the travel industry is a whole heap of white label systems knotted together, integrated to get somebody on a trip, right? So yeah. he, he lives and breathes this whole integration of systems and how you can make all these things work to create products for end users. And I look at his skill set and say, well, we need that in the rest of the business because why can't that work in shipping and logistics and some of these other things? Mm. And last but definitely not least is Rachel Lowe, who joined us in January. She's our um, Chief Human Resources Officer. Um, Rachel's ex, Victoria Plum. Um, she is superb. And her ability to take strategy and a commercial ambition and then change that into what we have to do around our people strategy is frankly the best I've ever worked with by some distance. And while she's not necessarily made the impact yet, let's face it, she's only been in 10 weeks, mm -hmm. Um, the impact she will have over the next nine to eighteen months is going to be going to be ridiculous, and actually is going to help really drive some of that cultural change. And all of that needs all of that work is to underpin the movement of a group of companies that is very focused operationally and very focused purely on service to one that is a little bit more ambitious in taking risks and wants to try and grow and thrive in their own marketplaces. Mm. And to do that, that's why we need to get the marketing right to do the low-hanging fruit, to show that growth is possible. We need to back that up with a load of investment into our people experience or our employee experience to really make sure people know that not only are we trying to deliver it out there externally, but we're also trying to do it internally as well. And that means things like at a basic level, we're aligning all of the um, the various employee benefits because they're mixed across the group. That'll that'll be a real step forward in some of those. We've increased our training and development budget um, about sevenfold relative to where the group was before. So we're already kicking off quite a few workflows on that. There's a massive policy review, which goes back to things like the social media policy we were talking yeah. earlier, to make it more reflective of the demographic that we've got in the business today as opposed to quite a lot of dry policies, which were a better reflection of the demographic that we had historically. So we've just got a whole heap of change going on. And and that that's really my big challenge over the next couple of years. So just going back to the um, increasing training sevenfold, or, you know, the budget for mm -hmm. uh, learning development sevenfold. When, when I joined here seven a bit years ago, one of the things it was, and I've worked for PLCs, you know, a family run to PLCs, whatever. And it, coming here it was the training was on another level and you know it was like wow this is you know and i was a ripe old age and i was like brilliant you know i'm, I'm all for for learning so with the people that have been in the business a while knowing that actually do you know what we've got a bit of a new we've got a new not a bit of we've got a new leadership team that want to invest in us what's been the the sort of feedback in actually do you know what great well you know has there been a i want to learn um, i'm all up for that or has there been oh i quite like it how i do things uh, as they are Complete range, right? A real complete range. So I would say the bulk of the guys, well up for it. They like the vision. They like the plan. They've all gone through a strategic review themselves. We've got that documented. They know where the plan is. 
and they see the value in um, upskilling the guys to be able to deliver on the plans that they have put in place. So there's a there's a there's a gr- there's a cohort of people that are right up for it. Yeah. Um, there's a middle cohort. They're a bit like I use. Uh, I quite like my job the way it was, and I'm not sure I need to necessarily do that. And there's a but there's a comms challenge in that. So you can't. You've got to sit with them and explain why, and, and take them on a little bit of the journey. Yeah. There'll be some that then go into being big advocates for what we're trying to do, and there'll be some that go the other way. Yeah. I think it's a really healthy culture in a business where you accept that there's people that have come to the end of the journey with your company. And that's not saying I'm sitting here wanting to get rid of staff. That's not what I'm talking about. But as businesses evolve and you progress and you change direction and you adapt to the external environment and what it needs, the business has got to change with that. And uh, acknowledging that a little bit of churn in your team and people that don't want to go on this next leg is fine. It's not, you're not a bad person. You're not in a negative place. I don't think anything less of you, but this is how we're going to be. Yeah. And it is get on board. Or actually, let's just shake hands and go and find a different way because we are going in that direction yeah. and we will do the things we want to do. Yeah, We'd love to take you with us, but it's not going to be at all costs. And you have to meet us somewhere in the middle on that journey. Yeah, And I'm not saying I need to develop everyone and I don't want everyone to be a, a star, right? It goes back to the old football analogy. You don't want a team full of strikers. I don't want a team full of strikers. But people have to at least engage in what we're trying to do if we're going to genuinely deliver on our ambitions to, to go and be one of the best family employees in the country. How, how do you deliver that change? You talk about comms, which I'm sure is a big part of that. But when you've got that mass of people that you want to kind of move from where they are currently to this, the new strategic plan, strategic review that you refer to, how, practically, how do you make that change happen? What are the tools that you use? I think engagement in the team is incredibly important and right at the start of all of that. So too many people go a bit down the track and then try and bring people in and then trying to keep them up a little bit and then speed them up. And then the plan changes a bit and you end up with a bit of a camel as opposed to a racehorse because all of a sudden you're trying to get everybody involved in the, in the project. Right. So my view on a lot of things is trying to get as many people involved as early as you can in the engagement side. So the fast forward plan, which is our three year strategic period, we've called it fast forward. We call it fast forward to give it a name. Because once it gives a name, it becomes a real thing. Whereas if it's just our strategy, everyone goes, it's mm. just our strategy, it goes in the top drawer. It's it's called fast forward. Fast forward is referred to in the regular conversation in the building, which means I know it's translating. It's part of our fast forward plan. We're doing this because of fast forward. You'll have heard it if you hear any of our guys speak. Yeah. They'll reference fast mm. forward, yeah. which is a big tick for me. That means the guys are at least buying into what we're trying to achieve. But engagement early is super critical to all of that. Um, you touched on comms straight away, and I'll always go back to comms being a marketing sales guy. Mm. I think everything starts there, really. But it's it's um, frequent, regular, so people know when to expect. But more than that, incredibly honest comms. So praise the stuff that's going super well. Call out the stuff that isn't going well. Tell people what you're going to do about the things that aren't doing well and then be seen to deliver on the areas that you need to improve on. Mm. Um, I think far too many people shy away from the negative news around stories. Mm. They can be the absolute best time to bring a team together, to regalvanize, to redirect, to bring some energy in. You've got to use that obstacle as an opportunity to do some of those things. So the comms piece is, is then incredibly important. After that, it's going through some of the right stages. So it's doing 
um, looking at the vision for the future. So where are we trying to get to? And make sure that's nicely and clearly defined and then communicate it. Mm. Um, one of the big things and one of the big challenges for my leadership team, especially the managing directors of the operations, is they are quite operationally focused. So my encouragement to them is always to try to drag them out of the day-to-day as much as possible. Keep your eyes open, look around you, what's mm. happening. And I think there's two ways to really do that. You've got to, you've got to find joint direction and then you've got to create boundaries because boundaries create focus. Okay. And as a leader, you don't have a load of time to do a thousand mm. things. You've got to focus on the really clear things. I heard a really nice analogy the other day um, about this topic and it was, um, a leadership role is a little bit like creating of a river. So the river is your direction, the edges of the river, the boundaries, the banks are the boundaries. And if you don't have those two things, you've got a puddle. And it sort of resonated <laughs> with me to say, right, well, actually, that is absolutely true in terms of what you've got in terms of your plan and your strategy. It's true. And um, so th- that's a big challenge with the leadership team is making sure that they've got those boundaries really after that then it's into the culture of the individual businesses and how they operate and the challenges that exist within those businesses mm. but it's about recognizing the gap between where we are today and, and and the vision and then just after that becoming obsessive about the processes um i work with a few leaders historically who are just always about the vision and about the vision and about the vision and you never get there because mm. they're not obsessive enough about the processes that you need to put in place to, to yeah. take you there and that's that's really where you take the strategy into operations and then it becomes about your processes and about your workflows and ownership and delegation and all of those other things which become the building blocks to take it up and and do that change mm. and and without some of those that you can talk as much about vision as you want it just just doesn't happen yeah so I yeah agree. it's a bit of a process and there's lots of bits to it but they're sort of some of the key things that I'm thinking about when I'm talking about change. So um, I'm always conscious that I'm I'm going back to something you said a couple of minutes ago. But uh, so when we were having, or oh, the Royal We, you're having these, um, yeah, here's all the positives of what we're doing and where we want to go to. But how internally has it been received, you know, with the, the frankness of we haven't quite hit this milestone for these reasons and, you know, calling people or, departments out or businesses out Mm -hmm. how's has is that different to how it used to be in you know gen 5 to gen 6 type scenario yeah so i and i don't think we're there yet john good if i'm honest um i still think there's more sensitivity and feedback than there possibly should be um because people are still it's still getting used to this idea that you can have frank conversations yeah and that's not on them. It's about their role and their input and their impact. Okay. And I still think we're all getting used to that. So if I go back once a couple of career choices ago was the right fuel car company. That was a brilliant environment where you, they talked openly about stabbing people in the front <laughs> instead of stabbing people in the back. Like right. That. And the whole idea was you can just be really honest to the other person and they accept that what it is, it's about trying to find the best result. Yeah. And it's not about you personally. You can be a great guy and I love you to bits, but this quite this bit here isn't working. The the my own mental model, my habit, for want of a better phrase, is five claps for every slap. Okay. Okay. That's how I try and do it internally in my own mind. So I'm looking for five ways to praise you before I come and give you a slap, knowing that the five bits of praise open up the opportunity for the bit of criticism or the, the challenge to be well received 
and that's a bit of a mental model that I have. But I'm, I, I'm so it is about the balance of your your claps and your slaps. Yeah. Do you do the what's your, the end? what's your clap and slap ratio? I probably don't get to five. It's probably a good learning for me. <laughs> that, but, um, I Noted. I, yeah, I think the model of yeah focus on what's good, but then build bring something in in terms of they can build on you've heard a few times from me John sure I have yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that's why I was asking what the ratio was on <laughs> well, I'm thinking I get more of a red sheet than, than a pat on the shoulder but you're absolutely right and I think in fairness this place is, is, in terms of spectrum has got a, a good culture in terms of an openness a willingness to have difficult conversations yeah definitely but, but it's not easy to create that culture it takes time it does take time but when you're there that's when the magic happens mm, because you, you're really in a place where everyone feels they can contribute. Ideas are shared openly, but if your ideas don't get any airtime, you accept it and you move on. Yeah. Uh, and and you find you, you get into really good working relationships with people when you can get there. It's just not easy again. Mm. To, to a certain extent within your delivery team, you know, the sprint reviews and things like that, while they're not slaps, mm. they're actually a good way of actually reviewing how a team's delivered something and the other team going, actually, have you thought about doing it that way next time? Yeah. That's, that's actually... One, one of the BPCs, instead of calling it Sprint View, calls it Bayer Arse Time, which I think is a good good way of summarising it. Who calls and it that? Uh, Adam Forrest. Does he? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's good. It's like, right, let's bear our ass. Over the last two weeks, what did we do that we could have done better on? Let's get that on the table. And that's, that's brilliant. If you get into that cadence of every week or every two weeks thinking... How could we have made a one percent improvement on what we've just done over time? That gets better and better yeah, and better. Sure. But it's the culture is the hard bit to to create in that sense. And how long do you think it took you guys to get there? I think, in fairness, when I came into the organisation, it had that culture already, mm-hmm. and I think that's a long-standing it's a kind of sales-driven culture. If I'm honest, where it, it's probably more straight-talking department than most mm-hmm. sales department. And I think that filters down from into other areas as well. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, um, going back to you know my background, this <clears throat> excuse me, this uh, is the first role where actually it's been you know three or four you know uh, claps and and then a slap and it's like and but the slaps actually do you know what that's fair mm-hmm. uh, and and actually and it's the first place where it has been completely sort of transparent as in do you know what yeah you've done a good job well done or do you know what what have you learned from that let's not make that mistake again mm-hmm. uh, and um and that's has yeah seven years i've been here and that's always been the foundation and i think that's now has filtered around all the other um sort of departments and then obviously when steve came in and sort of developed a, a delivery team you you know the, the methodology agile has enabled that with the reviews so i think there's a lot of uh, checking and inspecting and then just making sure, do you know what? Yeah, we could do that better. Did that well. Let's maintain that. And then let's do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and in, I'm in sales, so you're right. You don't want to, you don't want to lose an opportunity or lose, you know, a, a big deal for making a mistake that you may have made six months ago. It's like, yeah, we'd need to learn from it. Yeah. I think it's how you deliver the feedback as well. It's not just what you deliver, but, you know, try and split emotion from actually I'm, I'm being constructive and trying to help you do a better job, improve yourself, which will be good for all of us. And as long as that's a grown-up conversation and it, you act as a grown-up conversation, I think that that should and often go down all right. Slightly ageist here. Do you f- both to, to you both? Do you find because I know sometimes because of my age, 
sometimes, and picked up on what, something you said, Adam, earlier, sometimes do think it's a, rather than it's like, I see it as it's, John, you're failing at this, that, or the other, rather than actually just in the role that you're doing, John, we need you to do that. Do you have any, either of you, do you have any, um, are there any sort of typical age demographics where you have more trouble getting it across or to get them in line or on board, whatever the word is, rather than, you know, um, a role? Is it, can their age be a... Should I go first? Or? Yeah. Okay, me again. Just jumping in to talk about one of the processes that we often get asked to automate, which is the processing of supplier invoices, also known as accounts payable automation. So what does that mean? Well, most businesses receive invoices from their suppliers and a lot of businesses still have people that are manually reviewing those invoices, making sure that they're correct, making sure they're accurate, and then manually reeking them into a finance system or an ERP system. Well, our solution can automate that process. So typically an invoice will come in, we'll use capture technology to understand what's on that invoice. We'll then match that data up against good receive note to make sure that we've received the product. We'll match it up against purchase order data to make sure that somebody has placed an order for that product. And ultimately, if we can match that up, we can automatically push that into an ERP system or finance system and nobody has to touch it. How good does that sound? If there are exceptions, if there are things that need to be checked, that's fine. We can use digital workflow to push that to somebody to eyeball it and say, is this correct or does something need to change? Ultimately, though, that can then be pushed again into an ERP system or a finance system. This is about making your life easier. It's about making operations as quick and as efficient as possible. And we do that all the time. If that sounds interesting, then get in touch. That's enough from me. Back to the podcast. I'm not sure it's an age thing. I think it comes down to the personality of the individual. I'll leave. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, you can you can get some um, some of the older guys in the team who have done it a certain way forever and they can't accept it because it's always been this way. So you get barriers up. And then the flip side of that, you might have some of the younger guys that are just super hungry to learn and they'll just take it. Yeah. yeah. But I can also find some of the younger guys that like, well, no, I learned this at uni. This is what I'm doing. Oh, I've yeah. been at my old place. I did it like this. Yeah. You don't, what do you know? So I, I, I think it is down to personality as opposed to age. Yeah. Um, I also think, especially with the new generations that are coming to the workplace, I am seeing a bit of a difference in how people take feedback over those that have never actually been in a workplace and have always worked externally okay. or remotely. Yeah. And their ability to take feedback and directional is, is quite different to somebody that might have landed in the workplace and has always been in a workplace. And I think that's actually, uh, as we move forward and hybrid working and all the other things happen, I think that's going to be the bigger challenge. The guys that always work at home and then when they come into a workplace, how do they deal with that? Yeah, yeah. And how they deal with the personal interaction yeah. as opposed to over a screen or an email. Yeah. So I don't think it's uh, an age thing, but I do think we might have a different issue in terms of how and how, the, the way people work in relation to taking feedback. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think different personalities take feedback better than others. Um, I think with, with younger people... With all people, actually, I think a personal development plan is a good way of bringing feedback to the table because you can say, well, where, where are you now? But let's work on a plan. Where do you want to get to in three years time, five years time? Right. Well, we can see in order for you to get to there, what do we need to work on? And you can kind of coach that out of them. And off the back of that personal development plan, you can say, well, in order to get there, let's we need to work on X, Y and Z. And that's a good way of, I think, constructively giving feedback in a positive way that shows somebody that they've got career progression within your organization and that's that's probably easier to do with younger people but so maybe it is. we uh whenever 
people start here, Adam, we do a, an insights thing. I don't know if you've ever come across insights. No. It's, it, it's different colors and <clears throat> it's characteristics of a, of a person. And, and, I, and I suppose I'm going to put you under the light here now. Um, I thought I was meant to be the interviewer. What's do, going on here? Do, 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 do you, <laughs> would you know that the, I'm not expecting you to know it verbatim, but would you know your teams in general, the, the rough sort of colors they are? And if you do, do you manage them according to that? Uh, I, yes, I do, ish. Um, I don't necessarily think it's the colours that they are. I think each individual in the team, I, I, I probably know how I'm best having a conversation with them. So with, that- you, like, with you, I can be quite frank. With others, I need to probably use more of a coaching approach and get them to come up with the answer as opposed to me being very direct. Yeah. But that's, that's just as Adam said, the nature of different people, different yeah. different ways of working. Different. I'll let you carry on now. No, no, no. It's a good question. Um, okay, yeah. So so I will jump. I've lost my place now. Right, let's jump Sorry. back. So you, you mentioned earlier that you've got, I call them legacy businesses, but the, the kind of traditional business of John Good Group and that you're looking at how to improve the environmental credentials or change those organisations to be more environmentally friendly. And that, that's a challenge, I guess, as you said, when you've got warehousing and shipping, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So what, what does that actually look like? How do you how do you bring environmental credentials to those industries? I think the first thing you've got to do is get your own house in order. So that's a big focus for the group for the last six months and for the next 12 months is really understanding our own carbon impact and making sure that we've got all the right uh, right ways to measure and assess our impacts on the environmental bit and expanding out on that into into some of the EDI stuff and beyond to make sure we really understand where we're at. Um, I think uh, if we start making too much noise about any of those things too early, we're throwing sort of stones in glass houses and mm-hmm. that's not going to end well for us at all. Um, when you've got a business that's got 190 years of heritage behind it, you also are acutely aware of all the reputational risk about getting this stuff wrong. Yeah. So the whole greenwashing piece and over-reliance on offsets and all of these other things. So it's a really sort of tight rope to find, to sort of walk across to find our way through all of this. Um, But so we've done a big exercise this year. We're completely clear now on our scope one, two, and three emissions across the group. We're we're, We're working quite hard now on the wider supply chain emissions. So we understand the influence we can have around those. I think once you've done that stage and you get your own house in order and you start your reduction plans and any offsetting plans that you've got, you've then got to look at how you can influence the wider stakeholder groups within the various different industries, okay? So um, if you take our travel business, for example, we now have representatives on the environmental steering groups and some of the other BTA groups. So they can start to engage and talk about some of these key topics. So that's stakeholders on this side. And then on the customer side, we're now undertaking sustainability training with all of our operations guys who book the travel for for customers. And we're now regularly presenting back on every call uh, the environmentally friendliest way to travel. So don't do a domestic flight, do a train trip. Okay. And making sure that they get all the visibility and reporting around those things. So we're, we're not a big player in any of our industries, but we can still influence everywhere that we go in terms of what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. Um, we extend that further with, we've got a big foundation, so the Matthew Good Foundation. And we put a lot of volunteering time of staff into the foundation as as well as a sizable donation every year. 
Uh, but even those initiatives now will become an increasingly focused on volunteering around initiatives that are going to improve the environment or work with the local communities. And a good example of that is we're all out of Sperm Point. Mm. Uh, there were seven or eight of us out of Sperm Point at the back end of last year. We were trimming back the bushes to clear the roads. We were cutting grass. We we're doing all sorts. But even then, we can influence and the th- that where we put our focus is going to be on the areas where we can have some sort of impact. And that that's going to be the starting place for us. We've then got the broader group in the group's direction. And we're really clear that in, you know, by the time we get to 200 years, we want our existing businesses to be on the smaller end of the business. Mm. You know, they'll still be there. We'll still be doing what we do. But we want to give a lot of focus to the industries and the marketplaces that are genuinely trying to tackle some of the issues. And that hence my reference earlier to the energy transition part. Um, That's going to be an area where we play. It speaks to our values. It speaks to a growing marketplace. Mm. It makes sense from a group perspective, purely from an investment side. We've got to go that direction because if I look at the existing industries, they are going to come under loads of external pressures Mm. over the long period of time. And we need to try and find our way through some of that. So so while it's environmentally, it's great. Commercially, that sounds like that stacks up as well. You're moving away from kind of declining, maybe not declining markets, but markets that are under a lot of external pressure into growing markets that are only going to get better and better over the next 10, 15 years. For, yeah, exactly that. And, and you know, one of the things that you get when you become the sort of steward of this business is they hand you a book on day one and it's 190 years of history, okay? Mm. And you read this book and it's all about the original John Good who fell off a ship as a boy and was rescued two times and then went to take troops to Trafalgar and all these stories, <laughs> right? It's amazing history. And then you go, oh, shit. I've got to look after this now. I'm not going to be the guy that messes all this up, right? This is the job. So it comes with a little bit of pressure. This isn't yeah. a two or three-year-old business or something. This is a special thing. And um, so, yeah, so to back to your point, so part of my job is to make sure that we are thriving in five years and thriving in 10 years, and that will be a roller coaster like every business. But we talk about the business being here in another 190 years, and it's my job right now to manage this transition and it's actually a really difficult job. It's not like, let's do a bit more of a different type of logistics or let's do a shipping job or, mm. you know, that's all similar. Yeah. We're going off in quite yeah. a different direction. How do you how do you create that kind of shared vision, shared purpose for the group when you have got almost like a conglomerate of different kind of organisations within there? Can you create that still under a shared purpose? Or I think where we are today, we can because we've got maybe 110 headcount. So we're not that big that mm. you can't know the people's names and engage with them on a personal level and know some some of the stories around the business. So right now, and especially the way we set the business up, the group is all about the central services, that, that group of people I talked about earlier yeah. and what they can bring. And none of our businesses could justify any of those people in their own right. Yeah. They just couldn't. So that works because everyone's got that vested interest as we grow, there'll be maybe another layer of management come in. That's going to be more difficult. But ultimately, the, the values, the family values and Tim Good's values are incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. Incredibly strong about what he wants and what he doesn't want. And Tim, as a shareholder, is a brilliant guy to work for because he gives you that. He gives you a bit of the direction. He tells you he wants a business that he's proud of that reflects his values. Then he gets out of the way. Mm-hmm. And it's my job to see the values delivered into operational bits. So I don't. I will never be let off the hook on that. Those values are going to run through thick, regardless of what industry we operate in. That environmental focus is going to be there. Our passion around people 
is going to be there in a big way and making sure that the people that work for us are well looked after and cared for and developed and all the things mm-hmm. we've talked about. And the bit that I'm trying to bring to the party is the performance bit, right? Mm-hmm. So the three Ps, there, yeah. that's our third P. Um, because in my mind, the more performance we can drive into the business, the more we can do the transition story. And the better we do the transition story, the more that the group can do its social good ambitions through our foundation, because we'll just keep plowing profits in that way. Mm. We don't have a greedy set of shareholders. It is bizarre from my background. Right? <laughs> uh, you weren't greedy, all the former people I worked for, honest, but they, they took out big dividends, right? Yeah. yeah. These The guys are, are very, very um, are relaxed about the dividend policy. They take a fixed amount every year. It's quite modest relative to the profit of the group. But the whole principle is put it into the foundation, or put it back into the development of the business. Mm-hmm. And it's that mentality that's come through six generations. It, it flows into the business today. And that gives me the confidence to know we can carry on doing that investment story because in other businesses, you don't get that. Mm-hmm. It's the money drops into the bank account, gets to the year end, right? I'll have all of that, please, yeah. right? Do it again now and you've got nothing to work with. It's not like that at the group well, at all. The fact you're in your sixth generation just shows that that approach works and works well. Because yeah. there's very few businesses I'm aware of that have, have reached that milestone. That's well, incredible. And think of all of the things that the business has weathered. Mm. World yeah. War One, World War Two, yeah. what yeah. at least a handful of recessions. Yeah. Some privatization, public, you know, just loads of different things that have gone on within all of that, and it's still here today, and it's gone through all those those Amazing. different challenges. What about technology? Is is technology an opportunity or a threat to to your existing businesses or? in terms of innovation and yeah, the opportunities for that? I think it's huge, actually. Uh, and I think that was really the main reason why I wanted David North to come into the group to bring a bit more of that innovative mm. thinking to, to the group structure that, that he showed in the travel business. Um, if you go across all of our industries, so uh, warehousing logistics. So on the logistics side, we run 18 HTVs at the moment. There's clearly a massive conversation happening about what type of fuels are going to be used in the future. Yeah. Yep. Uh, is it going to go electric through battery tech? Question mark. Are we going to see a, you know, a hydrogen play coming in? Mm. Is it going to be a, a late revival around some new, more sustainable, more oil-based product? Who knows? And I see people talking about hydrogen. We've looked at hydrogen. From in my mind, that's that's some distance off. Right. Uh, with your bigger vehicles, batteries still aren't quite there yet. I think in the white van market, batteries are going to be massive. And I mean that in the next couple of years, I think that's really going to dominate. The range is going to be right for a white van man. Yeah. Um, all the right size, the, the costing is going to be right. I think mm. that's a perfect marketplace and we'll see a big shift there. But at the larger vehicle end, I, I still think we're arguably some way off. You look at our warehousing, warehousing is a really interesting challenge. So you don't have people that want to be forklift truck drivers anymore. You don't mm. have people that want to be warehousemen anymore. That, that, that It's becoming less and less. People aren't interested in those jobs. So we have a great team, long serving, and you know they've all got some years left in them, which is great. So mm. we're not talking about a problem right now. But if I take a 15-year view, we're going to have an issue unless we can bring some more talent into our warehousing environments. So palletized automation has got to be a way forward for us where we can deal with less people, but still deliver ultimately end service and just do a small bit of movement around the end and into the vehicle yeah. itself. So yeah, I think there's massive on warehouse and logistics. Shipping is going to be a really interesting one. Same energy source of ships is going to be a big deal. But I also think you're going to see technology around the whole port infrastructure start to change. It's still quite, it's still quite a legacy business. It's a lot of email. It's a lot of people. 
it, to be honest with you, my view is that the port and the whole shipping industry is a perfect use case for blockchain. Mm-hmm. But what you're going to need to find is some of the real big players embrace it. And if they embrace it, the whole thing's going to fall yep. in line. Yeah. Uh, and I could see that happening at, a, at the right time, but it's going to need one of the real material players to go, well, this is the way we're doing it. And everybody else go with. But you can see all the various, you know, customs and port entry and all these different things. You can see how that works for a blockchain. Mm. So I think that that's going to be really interesting. In terms of um, technology and around flights, uh, sorry, uh, corporate travel business, um, the platform play has already happened in the industry. So that's been the big disruption actually over the last few years. So technology is driving what the customer expects. Um, but even there, I think we're going to see massive energy change in terms of how we travel and what we where we travel. Um, and I think there's there's arguments for for both blockchain, but also AI in and around the booking of travel and the prediction of booking of travel and actually integration with people's calendars. And right, I see you've booked to go from London to LA. That books, you know, that drops in your calendar, and there's your ticket. Do you want mm-hmm. that choice, that choice, or this choice? I can see all that coming in the next few years. Do you think technology will reduce the number of people that are travelling for business purposes? Um. I think the pandemic's done that. Mm. Is that so, going to you think come that's back already happened then? I think to a certain degree it's already happened because the pandemic happened, corporate travel was never going to come back ever, right? Mm. But broadly speaking, our, our business is ahead of 2019, which is the last full mm. year to, yeah. to do it. But the industry's about 85, 90%. So we're, get, we're getting back to those numbers. All the, the, What the pandemic did, as you guys will know far better than me, is just get everybody really used to Teams and Skyping and all these other, Zoom and all the rest of the, these functions. And people are now used to that. So I think there's some of the short meetings. Remember those meetings that used to be an hour drive? They now are all happening mm, on Teams. Yeah. But, but <clears throat> there's still nothing like a face-to-face conversation. There's still nothing like being in the room, read the body language, how you're interacting with people, all those things that you lose yeah. on, on Teams and the like. So I think the market has shifted to a degree on that. So you may make slightly less frequent trips, you may you might have gone to see somebody abroad three times a year. You might do it, or four times a year. You might do it twice a year now and do two on Teams. Mm. I think that's changed, but that want to go and see people is still fundamentally there, mm. and people still are wanting to go out, and the results show that. It, it, it's it's strange because I, I I find that uh, so this morning I went and had a face to face over in Scunthorpe, and it was I. I have had a reasonable number of face-to-faces, but I found that dealing in teams has made me more productive because I'm not having that hour journey there. So I've lost two hours of my eight-hour day. Um, but then actually when I go on site to see someone, you're right, the interact, the physical interaction of just, you know, getting an understanding of the surroundings because you don't see that on a teams. All you get is, you know, the corporate background and things like that. Uh, amazing. But actually I had a, a, well, one of my closest friends, um, I remember I'm going back seven or eight years, but it was like, Oh yeah, I can't come on. Uh, I, I, I can't come on this golf trip, whatever. I've, I've got to fly to San Francisco for a two hour meeting and I'm flying back and it's like, you know, obviously now that's a team's thing. It's mm-hmm. no, no brainer, mm-hmm. but, that's that used to be like the norm and, and i'm like what you've got to fly all the way over there for mm-hmm. it yeah and i was like aaron and you know he had a, a very senior role and he was like yeah i've just got to oversee the meeting and then i'll come back and i'm like that was just blew my mind and by the pandemic coming that's kind of put that 
I'm going to say the word nonsensical. It's probably harsh, but the, the nonsensical travel, it's taken out because actually you, everyone can be more productive if you can just do it over team. doesn't mm-hmm. do, you know, the, mm-hmm. the travel business any, any yep. or planning travel um, business any, any good, but sort of makes sense. Whereas, like you said, Adam, instead of going four times a year, if I go twice a year, those visits are going to be way more, I would assume productive and and you know dare I say enjoyable because it's it's less frequent and yep. it's more valued if you, if you yeah, like yeah absolutely the other an extension of that as well is the other really interesting thing is now more people are home working and there's the hybrid mix what we are seeing as a trend is is businesses are looking to bring all of their people together for events more than they did yeah. previously so this is the way that they're getting around this not everyone seeing each other. So now you are you maybe go and do that trip, but they're also then bringing the rest of the team on the trip yep. to extend it to then mm. do a meeting, a conference, a get yep. together, a training session because they have to now mm. to build some of that cultural stuff in the teams. Yeah. So that's the first thing that's been really relevant on the back of the pandemic and the way people are working. The second bit is this notion of pleasure. So it's business and pleasure, and 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 employers now are far more comfortable in saying, well, look, historically. You're out on a Monday. We want you to fly back Friday, and that was what was expected. More more businesses now are saying, "Well, look, you're out there on a on a Monday. Fly back on Sunday. Have you, you're going to be doing that trip anyway? But take two days to go and see that place that you're visiting, yeah, yeah. and enjoy it, yeah, right. Yeah. And so this idea of pleasure is now becoming increasingly uh, prevalent, actually, in bookers. Wow. And you're seeing a slight change there. Love that pleasure. That's a, that's a new one. I like it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Last last question for me around the, the podcast is called Tomorrow's Workplace today. So we we ask each guest to cast their mind forward ten years and think. We've touched on some of this already, but what does the workplace of John Good Group, for example, what does that look like in ten years that is different from today? Um, we will need to embrace um, quite a lot of technology to really go on the journey that we want to go on, and we're going to have to try and find really high skill capable people to deliver on the back of some of the, the, the gains that give us that technology. Um, I think we're going to be a far bigger business in 10 years time than what you see today. And that's going to provide and well create a load of challenges for the business. And that can't always be solved by just adding more and more people. Mm. We're going to have to up our tech IQ quite significantly. I think if we want to go on the journey that we want to go on, I don't quite know how yet. And, and it will depend on where we go. Um, but but it's you know pretty clear that we're not going to be able to just keep throwing people at problems, and we're going to have to embrace more technology within our business if we're going to really be the business that I want it to be. And and I think that's probably the biggest change that you're going to see in John Group over the next ten years that the transition from the industry, and then what that group actually offers in terms of its people and its tech. Superb. I'll leave it there. Adam, thank you for joining us. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.